Hello, everyone, and happy Memorial Day. I am so excited and truly honored to be sharing this episode with Lindsay. I think you guys will all really love it, and hopefully it'll at least incite you guys to go out and vote in June um, to whomever you you know, support. But I quickly wanted to tell you about uh, the partnership that I mentioned last week, which I'm so excited about because it has to do with something that Lindsay and I talk about in this episode, which is therapy. So I'm partnering with BetterHelp, and if you haven't heard of them, they are an online counseling service that assesses your needs and then matches you with your own licensed professional therapist. It's not a crisis text line or self-help or anything like that, but it's professional counseling done securely online, meaning like you can do it from your couch, you can do it from your bed, whatever. And now that, you know, we're all doing therapy remote, it makes a lot more sense because it is so much cheaper and more affordable than traditional online counseling. And there's also um, financial aid available if you need that. Plus, um, there's a special offer for Solace in the City listeners, which is so exciting. But anyway, you get 10% off your first month if you try go to trybetterhelp.com slash Zoe. That's trybetterhelp.com slash Zoe, Z-O-E. Now enjoy this episode with Lindsay. Hi, everyone, and welcome to another episode of Solace in the City. Today, I am so excited and honored to be here with Lindsay Boylan, who is a candidate for Congress in New York, 10th, New York's 10th District. Um, so for those of you who don't know, that's basically the west half of Manhattan, like from Harlem all the way downtown, and then some parts of Brooklyn. So Lindsay, welcome, and thank you for being here. Thank you so much for having me. This is the highlight of my day, so I really appreciate it. Highlight of mine as well. <laughs> so why don't you just um, start off like by telling me a little bit about yourself? Where are you from? Sure. Like, what's sure. your story? So I, you know, I um, I've been thinking a lot. You know, we're in the midst of this um, public health crisis. I've been thinking a lot about, um, you know, how important to my identity it is to be a New Yorker, and it really is. You know, we're we're on the front lines of um, dealing with this. Um, really global challenge. Um, and my story of becoming a New Yorker is not the kind that, you know, I was born and grew up here. I chose to come here after college, grew up on the West Coast in San Diego and then Virginia, then fam fam family moved to New Mexico. I went to college in Massachusetts. So um, I like to think I'm one of those New Yorkers who came here and chose to be here and it's its own special kind of story. And I came here with a hundred bucks in my pocket, no money. And um, for me, being in New York, uh, especially in those early years, was all about how do we make the city work better for more people. Um, when I was a senior at Wellesley, uh, Hurricane Katrina happened in New Orleans, and everything was about how are we going to rebuild in a more equitable way. We know that hasn't happened, but that question really inspired a lot of my career, um, and it continues to how you actually create societies, create systems, and create a government that works for more people. And I think there couldn't be a more important question um, at this moment um, in, in how, we're, how, we're, how we ensure that people get um, fair treatment and testing, um, get access to hospitals. Um, and there are a lot of questions uh, uh, in, in front of that. And um, first and foremost is saving people's lives. Um, later will come, how do we recover in a way and how do we sustain people in a way that, you know, they, they, you know, they can eat, they have a house and roof over their heads and how do we, um, move forward in a way that is, that's, that's responding to the extreme inequality we've had that we just can't stick with, um, beginning with our healthcare system. And, you know, I've just spent, as I told you, I started in urban planning and I ultimately, uh, rose up to become Deputy Secretary for Economic Development for the state of New York under um, this governor, Governor Cuomo. And that was a fascinating experience, a great learning experience. And I got a lot of ability to make change um, 
But what I really saw was that um, you can't really fix a lot of these systemic problems, whether we're talking about housing or importantly, and for our topic today, mental health, just at the state level. You have to um, have a federal government that um, supports change, that funds change, that acknowledges that things aren't working. And you can't just make change at the state and local level as much as I spent a lot of my career doing that. And um, that's really what drove me to get in this race at this moment in time. The 10th congressional district is the most unequal district in the country. So we've got a lot of people doing really well and a lot of people struggling. And um, that manifests itself in every um, issue we have. Uh, uh, I think near and dear to my heart is mental health. Um, and I come from a family um, of women uh, who've, who've lost custody of their kids because of um, mental illness and addiction. First it was my grandmother, um, then it was my, my aunt who came and lived with us, and, and you know, more recently my sister. And you know, I had a very close relationship with all of those women. And, um, and, and still do with my sister. And, you know, you just see how many uh, systemic failures are at play that contribute to multi-generational um, problems. And at the heart of a lot of that is mental health and mental illness. And uh, I'm just unwilling to accept continuing to pass along these problems silently from one generation to the next. And I think the more I talk about it, the more other people have some version of that story. So um, you know, it's, it's a, definitely one of the reasons I'm in politics. Um, I'll think about it and act on it every day. And it's a real passion of mine because if we improved mental health treatment and acknowledge the challenges we have, uh, we would be in a much better place as a society. Definitely. Um, everything you said, like, rings true. I mean, just in terms of, you know, the best way to break the stigma around mental health or mental illness is by talking about it, which seems so simple, and yet it's still few people do it. So Absolutely. I really appreciate you um, opening up about, like, your past, and I actually remember that from uh, your, your video on your website, Mental Health is Personal. Yes, yes. And, you know, I um, even in small ways, the thing you never want to – I try to be very conscious of is, you know, this isn't um, a lifestyle um, brand that I'm promoting. This is about how do we get people real mental health care because mental health care is just as important as physical health care. So it's not like, you know, go take a walk and all problems are solved. We're, we're, we have a range of mental illness. Um, you know, we have a range of solutions and ways to deal with chronic mental illness. Um, but we're not going to deal with any of it if we're not providing people with... Um, with the the tools and we're not going to deal with any of it if we don't talk about it definitely so what made you decide to get into politics originally um you know my um my my passion for politics and my interest in it i think everyone has um things that they that they have a natural either affinity for or a passion about that that is a way that they can send a message and help the world. And I remember being a very little girl. Um, my aunt, um, my aunt came to live with us and she had a lot of challenges. Ultimately she, she committed suicide and I was, um, the last one to see her. Um, and you know, when you're that young, you don't fully put all the pieces together, but I found in my family with all the challenges we had and with experiencing something like that, I always wanted to fix things, right? Kids always want to fix things, particularly if, as many people do, you grow up in complicated families with a lot of problems. And that, um, when I was in environments that I couldn't control or fix, the idea that I could try and make something better or, or think about the future and how I was going to change something, that really sustained me. And that turned into, as I got older, um, the idea that if I taught myself, if I bettered myself, if I, if I figured out how to solve problems, I could fix things. And I think, you know, initially we all want to fix our own families and we return to our childhoods, um, you know, in many cases, but it really became, if I can't fix my own family, you can't go back in time. How can I fix things for other families so they don't have to go through um, some of the hardships. And I'm not suggesting that I've had 
necessarily more hardships than others, but how do I, how do I avoid, how do I provide people with more, um, options with more ways to avoid some of the hardest pain points in life that, um, people shouldn't have to deal with. If you are struggling with addiction, there should be, um, op options for, for you and your government should assist you with that. Um, that's the point of government in my view. If you're, um, if you have a kid that is dealing with anxiety and depression at an early age and in school, the school should be providing a resource to help on that. I mean, we don't just, um, we're not just um, providing kids with an education to go out and learn a skill and have a job. We're providing um, an education for them and how to deal with the world. And if we don't have mental health as a, a critical component of that, we're not preparing kids. So um, what started as like this very natural tendency for me to want to try and find ways to gather skills so I could fix maybe my own family or, you know, the things that went wrong in my childhood became something that was really positive, um, for me to try and help other people. Right. So that, that's kind of where it came from. And it, and it's always sustained me in difficult times of my life. You know, I can't, I can't fix this, but I can go learn how to make sure it doesn't happen to someone else kind of stuff. Yeah, that's amazing. And I mean, um, it really shows like the passion behind the profession. Um, I love it. Yeah. So how much of your platform focuses on healthcare and specifically mental health care? Within a 10 minute stump speech, I mental I, I mentioned mental health care, you know, within the first two minutes, I tell the story, I talk about the district and how it's the most unequal in the country. And it's all coastline. The two biggest issues of our generation are inequality, extreme inequality, and climate change. But then when I talk about the issues that are perpetuating a lot of that, that I have the most skills and propensity to grapple with and that I'm hearing about a lot in our community, it's housing as a, as a manifestation of inequality and um, a creator of cyclical inequality. And then it's mental health and it's climate change um, policy and preparedness. So I mention it right at the top of, of every conversation and it connects to every other policy item. You know, if you, if you want to talk about homelessness in our community, which we have a, many significant challenges with homelessness, a huge percentage of our chronically homeless um, communities have serious mental illnesses that are untreated. Um, they're undiagnosed. They're, um, you know, people are not getting the right medication or the right treatment that they need. Um, and then if they try to go into the shelter system, they're further um, traumatized um, by a lot of the experiences that happened being, being homeless in the city of New York, for example. We talk about criminal justice reform. Uh, Rikers Island, which is our um, you know, notorious, um, ultimately at some point in the next 10 years, closing, uh, less than that. Um, oh, wow. Yeah, um, we're moving to borough-based um, jails. Uh, but something like 40% of our Rikers population has severe mental illness. So I'm just thinking about two issues, criminal justice reform and homelessness, just to name two. And if, you know, if we think about how, how many lives would be different if we provided mental health care, whether we're talking about um, populations, uh, people who are homeless or chronically homeless, people who are um, wrapped up in the criminal justice system and how they're probably much more, you know, we would be so much better off and every person would be so much better off if we actually just treated people's mental health. Um, so just to name two. So I bring up mental health care all the time. And, and in fact, um, I try to actually, you know, and not to make light of this, um, alluding to like the last point I made about, it's not like a lifestyle brand that I'm trying to promote. It's serious mental health care, but I do try to, um, incorporate even in simple speeches, how I go to my therapist. Well, I don't go anywhere now, but I call her on Thursday mornings at 7 a.m. Because I think the more we see people in um, on a bully pulpit, in positions of of power, in um, you know who have a voice, talk about and normalize mental health care, the better we are. And um, boy, you can believe right now, um, my 7 a.m. calls with my therapist really matter because you know um, drastic change in um, life patterns and what's going around around all of us, this, you know, the level of really sad stories 
everyone could use someone to talk to. And I really rely on that. So I, you know, as someone who in this moment has a, a bully pulpit of sorts, who has the, the opportunity to speak out, I'm going to find every moment to um, quote my therapist, quote people who speak cogently about mental health care and mental illness rather than a famous president or a famous leader, because I think that's more what, you know, the reality of what impacts people. And, uh, you know, when I see a tweet from a celebrated person who's talking about seeing their therapist, I call it out in a very positive way. And I try to incorporate that in everything I do because uh, mental health care touches on every issue we have. Yeah, definitely. So one thing I was thinking about um, after I first listened to your interview with Stephen Hayes was it reminded me of watching like one of the Democratic debates. Um, there was a question about the health care system, like obviously, but uh, for a brief moment, Pete Buttigieg responded by saying that we need a healthcare system that incorporates mental health, and he got an enormous applause. And yeah. I think that really speaks to like, you know, millennials really care about this issue, and it. I'm surprised, like, why haven't other politicians spoken out about mental health? Because it's something that you know doesn't affect it. It doesn't discriminate against like based on race, gender, no. sexual orientation, country of origin, etc. Like, why? Is it not talked about more? Well, I do think that there is a, a real generational shift in mm -hmm. younger younger generations' willingness and upbringing, you know, to be com more comfortable talking about mental health and mental illness. But you know, even as someone who, you know, who experienced the front lines of it growing up throughout my childhood, for you know, my grandmother, my aunt, even my mother and my sister, um, and then you know, when I was pregnant, I had postpartum and there were different moments um, because of trauma, you know, that I really needed to talk to someone who was dealing with a lot. I had a lot of shame about this for such a long time because I think our society um, has taught us to, to keep quiet about these things and to feel shame. Um, you know, that this is, it sounds a lot like a Brene Brown book, but um, I do think that there, I think she's spot on in, in, the power and the culture of, of shame that we have, at least in this country. And, um, and I think there has also been an element of, um, you know, uh, delegitimizing people who speak about mental illness or who speak about mental health and, and particularly from a place of having been in poor mental health, right? Like we never would, um, hear a, a politician say, I'm recovering from, you know, heart surgery. And then people would say, oh, well, we can't like, I'm not going to take them seriously anymore. Yeah. Or I'm going to, I'm going to judge them based on that. You know, you say, oh, so glad you're recovering. You know, thank you for sharing. You're so strong. But that is absolutely not how we treat, um, at least we haven't in until, you know, very recently mental illness. Um, people are maligned. They're, they're, um, stigmatized and they're shamed. And I do think that that's changed a lot, particularly in the last 10 years. Um, I think many other social movements have, have helped that. Um, you know, it, it's no surprises to me that it's, it was Pete Buttigieg who said something about that and that people responded to it. Um, I, I think you can always, um, uh, people are always capable of evolving. Like that's the great nomer or nomenclature that people use in politics to change your views on things. But mental health is um, deeply personal. It's at our core. It's who we are. And um, until very recently, generations were told to hide it and that it was shameful to talk about. So um, I have a lot of sympathy for people who aren't able to talk about it, entire generations who have been taught not to talk about it. Um, you know, you can't blame a lot of generations for not having the ability to be comfortable with this. Um, even younger generations are, are uncomfortable with this. Like, I'll give a speech and I'll talk about my personal experience as an opening to kind of normalize and provide credibility of how much I care about the issues. Um, and I know a lot of people will respond. I can tell in their eyes but no one will say anything. And then they'll come up to me afterwards or I'll get an email or a call and say, you know, that really resonated with me. So um, everyone's at a different place and that's okay because um, in, in many ways, it's a leader's responsibility to um, step out in front of something, to step out in front of a problem, 
to take responsibility, to, to be accountable. And I don't think mental health policy and, 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 and dealing with mental health is any different than um, dealing with uh, another kind of crisis, because it is a crisis um, that we're not dedicating enough resources to. So I'm happy to speak about it personally. I'm happy to not remove myself from a problem. Um, and that's, you know, that's, that's really important. Definitely. I think um, I w- I one thing I'm a firm believer in is like if you have a platform, like you should 100% use it to talk about something that's important to you. Like no matter if that platform is, you know, more of like a celebrity. I was interviewing someone um, who's on Bravo last week or, awesome. you know, or like a politician. It's just the you reach so many more people. And um, so I think I really commend you for all of that. How can other politicians normalize the conversation? I remember you saying that there's almost no one, there's no one from New York on the mental health caucus. Yeah, there's, um, so there's no one from the city of New York congressional delegation in the mental health caucus. There's one member of the New York um, state delegation, and it's actually uh, Catco in upstate New York, and he's a Republican. And you know, I, I would say that I don't agree with him on probably 90% of what he, 99% of what he, you know, puts forth as policy. But um, I heard that the reason why he joined um, the caucus and the reason why he cares so much is because he lost, I think, maybe a goddaughter um, to suicide um, because, you know, and, and, and as a result, he really cares about this issue. And, um, you know, one in four, one in five people is dealing with issues of mental illness at any given time. Um, statistics say um, who the World Health Organization um, declares that the number one cause of disability from work and um, whatnot is, is depression. And so, you know, every family, every person knows someone, maybe not intimately, maybe it's not you, but you know someone. So. Um, if I can, if I can own it personally and then say, here are the things we can change, you know, ideally under a Medicare for all system, we, we, um, we reach students, we fund, um, school-based, uh, mental health resources because there aren't nearly enough mental health counselors. Um, we actually make, um, routine um, mental health care and pharmacology, a whole host of solutions, really um, financially feasible um, at the very least, ideally under a Medicare for All system. We invest in robust research at the National Institutes of Mental Health. Um, we develop um, and resource uh, a new emergency system that doesn't escalate um uh, mental health emergencies to require really poor outcomes where we're imprisoning um, and putting putting people who are in emergency situations into even more um, difficult moments. Um, and there are a whole host of things we can do. But I think, um, you know, I'm not, it's not as if I, I, um, I love people. I don't necessarily desire to be the center of attention. But this is an issue where if I don't if I don't share something personal, it, it doesn't hit people. I've tried to share that I care about mental health and mental illness, but if I don't say, you know, how it's affected my family, how it's affected me, then I don't, I get like a glazed look from people. And so I'm all about getting results. And so if I need to get other leaders or other peers on board or people in a community to understand how mental health and mental illness impacts people, then I'm going to make it personal and I'll use myself because I'm not going to put someone else who chooses not to be in public life in that position. So I do think that's a really important element. Um, I also try to use this moment. Like I think strategically it's the perfect opportunity to um, advance mental health for two reasons. One, we're having this great national debate about um, healthcare as a human right. And I truly believe it is. That's why I'm supportive of mental of, of Medicare for all. But why are we going to have a conversation around healthcare as a human right and mental health is rarely, if ever, mentioned in that conversation? That cannot be the case. So um, for me, it's all about seizing this moment in time where we all have this broad recognition that healthcare should be a human right. And boy, I was saying this um, six months ago, but doesn't it have even more resonance now, right? Because mm-hmm. 
um, we don't have a healthy society if we don't have health care for everyone. And we're seeing that right now, right? Um, it's, uh, it contributes to so many challenges we have. So um, I think speaking about it personally, I think using this strategic moment where we're talking about health care as a human right, and then making it, you know, digestible, talking about, you know, people would say things like, well, we passed Medicare, you know, we passed um, um, parity laws. But, you know, it's not real parity if you can't get access to regular ongoing therapy when you need it um, in a way that's, um, you know, financially feasible for you. It's not parity if you're a 12-year-old kid and you don't have access to seeing someone for therapy and you've experienced the trauma of poverty or you've experienced the trauma of divorced parents. Um, I, I happen to um, have this great opportunity to get first aid for mental health care um, training at, um, you know, downtown at um, Child Services. They were hosting it. The city was putting on and funding it. Oh, cool. And, and it was great. And I mentioned the story because it was really illuminating for me. You know, I'm not a mental health professional. I'm just someone who views this as a, a personal, lifelong journey to support. Like, I'm an activist about it. I'm not, I'm not a professional. So I'm learning things all the time about the profession of it that I should know so I can be a better advocate. Um, and there's something called the ACEs scores, which you may know about already. And it's, it's basically um, a certain number of traumatic instances, if you have it in, them in childhood, you're basically guaranteed to have a, a higher propensity to have really bad life outcomes, you know, um, oh, wow. alcoholism or early death, a, a whole host of really bad things, purely because you had a certain number of traumatic things happen to you in childhood. And, um, you know, I, I took the test, and it, it, this test had been found not because they were trying to research mental health care, but they were, I think um, Kaiser was doing a study on diabetes, and it just so happened that they got a wide enough sample group of people across socioeconomic backgrounds, across race, across gender, um, and it showed resoundingly if you have traumatic experiences and a certain number of them in childhood, it's very likely you're going to have really poor life outcomes. So they weren't even spending the time. They weren't focused on mental health. But boy, did they learn a lot about that. And I took the test myself and I had an extremely high score. And I had like a, a seven or an eight, which is like, oh, you're not going to you're going to have a terrible <laughs> you're going to have terrible life outcomes. And and then I thought about, you know, the representative things on the the questionnaire that my sister had which she had a, a much more traumatic um, childhood than I did even and my mom did too and and I thought why was I the one who was lucky enough who had the ability to remove myself from the cycle of you know poverty or the cycle of trauma the cycle of abuse all of these things I was not abused my sister was and so was my mom um and so I didn't have as many traumatic things, but I had a fair number. And part of that was because, um, in my view, when you know, I had this terrible reality of dealing with my aunt and being there before she um, you know, committed suicide and, and, and decided to end her life, um, I got therapy as a six-year-old. And I got therapy for a number of years because it helped me as a little kid um, put into um, some sense of hierarchy and order how to think about things and it helped me tremendously and so for me that was normal like brushing my teeth so in my teenage years when I was dealing with body image issues um, it was completely normal to me to see a therapist in my post-college New York years when I had a really bad breakup it was completely normal for me to see a therapist um, when I was becoming a new mom and I wasn't sure if I would do be good enough at it because a lot of women in my family had struggled I saw a therapist you know, I had access to tools. Um, my parents scraped to afford it, but they were able to get that for me. And it meant that I was able to break the cycle. And I want that for other people. And um, as much as I really don't like to talk about myself, people need to hear you put your cards on the table to be willing to put theirs. And so uh, maybe more than most other issues, I feel like I have to do that here, right? Um, yeah, 100%. I found even just making like making myself vulnerable on this podcast has opened the door to people feeling like they can confide in me 
and it's yeah. the most rewarding feeling and just you know it, it's so valuable and I it's I mean it's interesting you say that like you you wonder why you were the one to break the cycle because I I feel like I had something similar where I've struggled with like depression and anxiety a lot in the past mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. and um I I kind of kept to myself about it just my family and um yeah really just my family and the therapist were the ones who were aware and then in on Christmas of 2017 I lost uh, one of my best friends to suicide and I had no idea like I mean it seemed at the time unexpected but for a while I I really was like racking my brain as to why it was him and not me and why like and it really I mean it made me pretty confused and distraught for a while but I think you know ultimately that could I was able to try like take that confusion and that that passion and of you know making sure that never happened to anyone again and then open up the conversation so I think you know very in different different ways but it, you're taking your own experiences your own like hardships, hardships yeah and and turning yeah. to something beautiful and really making a change yes and you know you you um you're honoring your friend in that way yeah exactly so i remember you saying on stephen hayes podcast that you were a big fan of everybody lies by seth stevens davidowitz which was one of yeah. my favorite books um, so I was wondering if you could explain a little bit about what you learned um, from speaking to him about like New York and mental health and how they you know, coincide. I mean, it was life changing. It was so the, the and it's been some time now and it sticks in my head still, even though I, you know, I can't tell you what all the chapters were about. That's how meaningful it was. And that's how good a book it was. In my view, the biggest, the biggest premise and the kind of way it, it had me rethink, um, you know, many ideas I had was people, we're not always, sometimes it's subconscious, sometimes it's because of shame, sometimes there are other reasons. We're not always saying what we mean, and we're not always talking about and sharing what's going on in our lives. And I think um, maybe more than any other issue, mental health is the perfect example of that. Um, and because I read the book and I kind of hunted Steve, uh, Seth down and became his friend before he became a super famous writer, um, you know, he did this data piece, just a quick, quick and dirty example of what people are thinking versus what they're saying. And in Manhattan, more people are Googling anxiety, depression, and therapy than gun control, climate change, and plumber combined. And, you know, that's just to say not to minimize issues of gun control or climate change because they're certainly critically important to me. But we're all struggling um, with things that we're not talking about. Um, This is a fast-paced city. A third of our people are extremely rent burdened, which means that they live with the anxiety that they won't be able to make ends meet. And boy, has that, um, you know, exacerbated it within this public health crisis. Um, we are all in this moment, especially are, are struggling with things that we're not always comfortable to talk about as a group. And Seth's book, Everybody Lies, manifests that. It says, you know, we say one thing, but we frequently mean another. And it's not out of malice. It's not out of like being bad. It's because, um, we've been taught to keep things in and particularly where mental health is concerned. And I just kind of had an epiphany around that because, um, you know, that's exactly what we do with mental health. And how how much easier would we breathe if we didn't have to pretend like we didn't all struggle at different moments, right? Yeah. I mean, yeah. how amazing would that be? And again, I don't want to dim- diminish or minimize serious mental illness um if someone's struggling with bipolar borderline schizophrenia like they're like like physical health there's a real range of of just like physical health there are a real range of of illnesses that we we confront um we're confronted with as a society i just want to say um we all at some point have or will deal with mental illness and so there's no reason to feel shame about that the only thing shameful is that we 
our society is geared to ignore it and then ignore dealing with it. And, and the book kind of just says that, like what people are searching on the internet doesn't lie. Right. And actually it's not even just mental health. Like I think this is in the book, um, you know, the CDC uses what people are searching to, to, to get indicators about the flu season. Right. So Mm -hmm. when people start searching for, um, you know, the, the, flu medication in um, Georgia or Tennessee or, you know, or in California, they know where the flu season has hit. I'm oversimplifying it. I'm not an academic, (laughs) but these things don't lie. And um, particularly in an area where we so frequently lie, our mental health, um, it was freeing. And to know that everyone deals with these issues is freeing and it's empowering. A hundred percent. What can politicians actually do to enact change and make a real impact in the mental health community like versus what's out of their control. Yeah. I think that maybe more than most other issues, there's so much that can be done because in my view, mental health is always an addendum to healthcare. It's physical healthcare. It's always an addendum to something else. You know, um, we have mental health care parity laws, meaning like we should be treated equally, but what if, we had a real advocate in Congress who woke up every day and started the day saying, I am going to advance funding and research and legislation for mental health care in every facet of what I do. And that's what I'm going to do. I mean, I think someone's asked me a few times, like, if there's one thing that you want to be known for or that, you know, you, you feel like you can have an impact on. I mean, I, I think I, I have a lot of um, skills and capacity and job creation and housing and climate change related to my career, but I don't see anyone else taking up the mantle of mental health care. And so I would say that because I'm going to do it every day. Um, we need much more funding for professionals of, you know, from sixth grade to say eighth grade in school-based solutions because kids are increasingly um, at 12 and 13 experiencing severe anxiety and depression and and they don't frequently get treatment for at least a decade which means we are creating problems and if you want to put it in economic terms which i don't think we need to but for some of the people who who care about policy that's really all they respond to we're creating costly problems because we aren't helping people when there's time to make changes in their lives. If we miss helping a kid at 12 or 13, we are almost guaranteeing that we're going to, we're going to saddle them with all kinds of, all kinds of challenges in life that, that make it hard for them to be successful. And that makes no sense. Um, increasingly we have kids with anxiety and depression. Increasingly young black men are committing suicide. Increasingly, uh, members of our trans committee or uh, c- committee are committing suicide. We can't have that. And there's a real solution to that. It's robustly funding healthcare, mental health care professionals, um, you know, depending on school system um, and locality between sixth and 12th grade, uh, sixth and sixth and ninth grade, particularly when they're at that moment that can do the most transformative change. And then of course, continuing on with those resources so you don't have one mental health care professional if one at all for 600 kids there's just no way that they can even be um a good guide for someone to get access to the tools they need and we can't assume that kids are getting those tools at home we can't assume it in any case we have to we have to provide that and um getting an education doesn't get you far enough if we're not providing good mental health care and growth for kids as well. And I'm not saying there it, it does take a community, but we need to provide that within the schools. Um, we need to resource um, a lot more research. Um, you know, I was amazed. I went to a session at um, Rockefeller University, which is purely research. They don't have an educational component. on. They're on your, your district, um, the east side of Manhattan. But Oh, cool. They were talking about um, how, compared to other disciplines, our our um, mental and um, and um, brain related medications and understanding research wise 
of, of their implications are really behind um, for children. So what we end up providing for adults um, has been the and frequently the kind of first attempt at what we provide for kids. And growing and developing brains, um, just like, um, you know, um, mental illness at 12 and 13 should be treated differently than how we treat mental illness at 45. No normative judgments in one versus the other, but we we provide so few resources, and yet we know that there are so many differences in how we research and the outcomes and who it helps. For generations, uh, we researched and we made decisions about heart heart attack and um, heart medication based off of research built upon how men had heart attacks. And we've learned in the last in the intervening years that women, the sign for women of having heart attacks and the pre-heart attack signs are very different and we should treat them very different. Well, kids are different too. And we don't, we haven't resourced. We are still in early days. The, the ways that we could help um, um, early intervention and, and it's not just, I mean, I'm a mom, so I really care about young people and I care about my kid and I care about her generation. But I talk about young people because that's where we have the opportunity to change the tide. We want to reach younger people because that's, that's where we can change the trajectory of lives. If you are experiencing trauma, if you're, you come from a family where a parent is depressed like I do, or you experience a lot of trauma as a kid like I did, we need to meet those kids where they are at that age before they then have that snowball effect, that cyclical effect that makes it that much harder for them to, to um, live their full potential and i'm really passionate about that um so you know we really need to focus on early childhood we need to focus on research we need to focus on the emergency management system because i hear too many friends and um fellow advocates who've been hospitalized who've had really bad experiences um not because they didn't recognize that they were in a crisis situation but because the only tools that most communities have to dealing with someone in mental health crisis is to call the cops. And that's not the fault of the, of the police departments. It's that we don't have any avenues to help people um, in mental health crisis. Or um, if it is the police, not all have necessarily been given the opportunities to train, like I took the first aid, mental health first aid. So we need to resource all of our community partners. We need to think about the ways that we're interacting with mental health people in mental health crisis. Um, and I think if we have an advocate, we're going to get so much further. And, um, you know, I can't, you know, one woman I really love is Lauren Underwood. She's a, a freshman senator, uh, excuse me, congresswoman representative from Illinois. She talks about mental health um, because she's a nurse and she worked in the Obama administration. But, you know, I'm talking about making this my one of my signature lifelong issues in politics, because if we move the needle on mental illness, in terms of how we treat it, we will move the needle on our society in so many ways. And so like early childhood intervention investments, particularly school-based and community organization-based um, investments in research, much more robust investment in research and systems-wide treatments. Um, and, and then um, also starting with, uh, you know, the emergency system for how we deal with people who need immediate treatment and ongoing treatment. It shouldn't bankrupt families like it did almost my sister to get treatment for alcoholism, you know? Um, yeah. That should be just possible, right? Yeah. So those are just some initial things, um, but they're, they're really big, and it just takes someone who's dogged about waking up every day and doing that. I'm going to do it. Yeah, I feel like there's so much room for growth that the, the possibilities of things to add are just almost endless. Yeah, I agree. So I always end my podcast by asking a series of five questions. Um, sure. Not the, so they're you can take them wherever you want. <laughs> they're they're just questions I ask, and I really need a better way to preface that. <laughs> First question is: What's one thing in your life that's happened to you that's made you a stronger person today? I would say coming to New York without a job and breaking up with my boyfriend at the time which sounds small but we were living together and 
you know, New York can be very isolating and lonely, um, you know, when you come here. And I kind of had to figure out if I could make it on my own. And um, I did. And I kind of actively chose to to do something different with my life. Um, and that was scary for a lot of the time. That was scary for probably two years. Um, <laughs> and, I, you know, it was really important. It was the right decision for me. It was the right decision for the person I was dating at the time. And, you know, I don't I don't know if we'd be talking about this thing on the phone, you know, what I'm doing now if, if I hadn't kind of actively made difficult decisions that didn't always put me in easier um, scenarios. It was important to kind of look at my life and see, is this going where I want it to? Is this the right path? And I think a lot of us in our 20s, you know, go through that. And I certainly did. Yeah, I think 23 is the hardest year. I stand by it. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I think I was 23, 24, yeah. Yep. Do you believe everything happens for a reason? I think, I think I'm somewhere between believing in destiny and also believing I can create my own destiny. So I do believe that um, things are put in front of us to take advantage of in terms of, like, how do we make the best of the situation? But I don't think things are predestined. Um, if I did... I think I wouldn't know what to do with my anger about where women find ourselves in society right now. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's true. And that's a really good way of putting it. I, I haven't had it framed that way. Do you have a quote or mantra that you live by? Yes. Um, so one of my favorite, um, all-time favorite authors, writers, thinkers is Nora Ephron. Um, and she wrote, you know, When Harry Met Sally. She wrote Heartburn. She's a really brilliant Oh, I woman. didn't know that. That's awesome. Yeah, she's brilliant. And she actually went to Wellesley where I went. And I just, um, I love her writing. She's like, she can be acerbic. She's always smart, very funny. Um, just a brilliant woman. And she has, I'm trying to see if I can find the right wording, exactly right wording. But in essence, it's like, um, I hope you, whatever you do in this world, I hope you choose not to be a lady. I hope you choose to go and make a little trouble out in the world on behalf of women. So, you know, especially now, um, I feel like it's really easy culturally to put women um, and put ourselves into boxes of what we should do and what we shouldn't do, what we should say and what we shouldn't say, how we should be, how we should look. And the older I get, the less I'm interested in, in kind of listening to that voice, whether I'm, it's in my head or someone else's. And I'm really focused um, on how we make change for women in this world, because if we make change for women in this world, we're going to change the world. Um, right now, um, in the city of New York, as I look out my window, um, I know that as a group, women are... Um, struggling in poverty the most they're um, caregiving for children alone alone in the biggest numbers and older women are um, you know living longer lives but um, not able to live them well so there's probably a lot of women who are uh, isolated in the city of New York and I think about that a lot and so I think if I could change in my own corner every day um, the status of women then we can change so many things and um, you know I think to do that you could sometimes have to crack some eggs yeah. I, I feel like I'm cracking eggs every day. I mean, I'm doing stuff <laughs> by running against this guy who's been there 30 years. <laughs> yeah, I, I definitely agree. One of the most memorable experiences I had was the Women's March in 2017 in D.C., and that was just... Oh, yeah. That was... The, I was there, too. Oh, really? Yeah, yeah that was a, yeah. a great time with my mom and one of my best friends and her mom, and it was just wonderful, even though it was really cold. <laughs> I know, it was. My, I went with my mom, too. It was really powerful. Next question is, what do you love most about yourself? I love how inquisitive I am. Like, I really am interested in how things work. I think I maybe started getting interested in that when I was younger. Um, it took my mind off of when things are going wrong in my family. But I love to dissect things and see how they work. And um, it served me really well in life. And um, it's what I enjoy most doing. Love that. When it, when is your birthday? April fifth. It's on Sunday. <laughs> oh wow. Okay, so you're an Aries. I, yeah. I get really into astrology, so you're a leader. That uh, makes amazing. sense. <laughs> um, and then finally, like, oh, you're an Aries. 
<laughs> my sister's an Aries. Her birthday is today. So, uh, oh, amazing. Happy yeah. birthday to her. A great, great sign. Um, in one sentence, how do you find solace in the city? I, so I love, and you know, this goes back to my, I remember my early, really tough times, 23, 24, like I mentioned to you, didn't have any money, it was like cup of noodle soup central every day. Um, you know, I didn't know if I, I moved apartments nine times in 10 years. It was a very tenuous decade. Um, yeah. And I would just go to central park, turn on um, my headphones and listen to classical film composers, um, from some of my favorite films. Um, I love film composers and I would listen to my favorite songs on repetition. I still follow film composers cause it's calming and I usually take a good book, um, I think a lot of people assume that if you if you want to be in politics, you're a politician, you're an extrovert. And it's true that I love people. I love learning and listening to people, but I'm a natural introvert, which always shocks people. Um, so I like to kind of have that time to take in the world and to process things. Um, so I would love to go to like a park, um, put my headphones on, read, read a few important books and absorb you know what was happening in my life and what was happening in the world and I still I do that um a few times a week yeah I that's one of my favorite things is just going to the park and seeing some green I know <laughs> that's why it's so hard right now right yeah it'll <laughs> hey, hopefully pass soon well anyway yeah. Lindsay thank you so so much for agreeing to like speak your truth and just talk about everything that you're passionate about and that you want to run for. How can all of my followers like learn more about what you want to do and how can they support you? Um, just, sure. yeah. So the good starting point is on my website, uh, Lindsay with an E Boylan, B O Y L A N.com. And, um, it has our whole platform on there, um, including mental health. And I'm also really active on Twitter and Instagram um, and Facebook. I would love people to volunteer. Of course, most of that is, or if not all of that is, you know, remote digital um, phone calls. But it's really important. Um, the primary date is June 23rd, and that's the big date we're working towards. So we would love anyone to volunteer and get engaged in the campaign and obviously support us financially if they can. Um, and to share share if they, if they like what we're talking about and what we're about and what our team is doing share it with others because that's how we you know spread the word and that's how we win and that's how we change things definitely politics is local ultimately so I exactly think, <laughs> i i think it's important that we all get involved and um it's interesting that it's after the election dates after mental health awareness month because that's definitely a time i'm excited for hopefully yes. we'll be able to leave our apartments but you know <laughs> yeah. and well, I, I think it's wonderful this um series that you're doing and i, I love that you're doing it and I, i'm excited to stay in touch and hopefully we can get – you should have Seth on. So I, I'm, I'm going to email him. He would be great. Oh, I would love that. Well, thanks again, and bye, everyone.